0: This is the Room Now podcast for the 22nd of February, 2019. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This edition is brought to you by Room Now Live. Great rheumatologists like us go to great rheumatology meetings like this. It's in Fort Worth, March 23 through 24. This edition has got a happy title. It's not death and taxes, it's death and joint replacement surgery. Sorry for the downer, but it's the best I could do. Let's start out with a population from Sweet, A population study from Sweden that actually looked at mortality rates in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and also patients who have general musculoskeletal diseases. They did sort of an ICD nine kind of ICD ten kind of search on their population. This is from one region in Sweden, Skane, Skan. Sorry if I did that wrong. And they looked at the patients, the population. Uh, and they found amongst the RA patients and amongst the, um, those with musculoskeletal complaints and diseases that the standardized mortality rate was 2.2 fold higher in RA patients compared to those who didn't have RA and 1.5 fold higher in MSK patients compared to those who did not. That mortality rates were actually higher in those who had less education. And this has been pointed out by Ted Pincus and others in the past. Uh, especially when you consider those with less than nine years of education versus those who had greater than 12 years or equal to 12 years of education. Now, why is education a determinant for uh, better outcomes? Uh, and if you don't have it, poorer outcomes? I, again, it's really not well explained. It's, other studies have shown it's not an access issue uh, or that they're better patients. There's a sort of a multifactorial reason. It's the same thing for lower socioeconomic status. Um, My view is we don't know and if I had to guess at this point my crazy guess is going to be it might be related to diet and microbiome that those with less education those in lower socioeconomic groups don't eat as well and maybe that's an important factor in not only getting disease but how the disease is played out. Um, We'd like to see more research on this. Another study looked at mortality rates in an RA registry uh, of over almost 13,000 RA patients. They found uh, 1,500 deaths, per, they followed these people prospectively, uh, amongst um, a total of, uh, what was it, 80,000 patient years of follow-up. They found that mortality was most strongly associated with BMI greater than 30. And when that was seen and, and, and that was seen early actually at age 30 where there's a two-fold increase in mortality uh it continued on in older age although not as strong so obesity another risk factor for mortality um and so Again, why, it's really not clear. You know, there is data about those who are the most obese actually not having higher death rates. Uh, It's really those who uh, are obese and those who are um, actually very, very thin who have the highest death rates in rheumatoid arthritis. But obesity is is a risk factor. It's a risk factor for getting disease. It's a risk factor for having more severe disease. It's a risk factor for having less response to usual therapy. So here, it's a risk factor also for mortality. Uh, In Australia, they did an analysis of almost a half million total knee replacements uh, and found that revision rates were actually lower in RA versus OA, but that uh, the risk of infection was higher in RA patients. Uh, And I think that this is um, a trend, I think that there's a more selective um, use of surgery in rheumatoid arthritis these days, patients are better treated, they're probably going to surgery with a need for surgery, but maybe a little cleaner, they're better managed with more aggressive therapy. OA, really the therapy and the outcomes in OA really haven't changed that much in the last several decades where it has changed in RA, so it's therefore not surprising that the outcomes of surgery would be better in RA compared to OA, and that's just looking at knee replacement surgeries. A, st- a study from Finland looked at almost 4,000 JIA patients and compared their outcomes as they got older to normal population controls. Uh, in that cohort the mean age of death for those who did die was 20.3 years of age um, and they showed that the death rates were not increased in JIA patients who um, as, they grew, as they grew up that they basically had the same rates of death but what was different were the causes of death whereas Um, normal population, normally young individuals, adolescent children, um, young adults are more likely to die from suicide. Um, The JIA most common cause of death was accidents. JIA patients also had less substance abuse and less depression. And again, again, those being linked in their own way to uh, death rates in non-JIA patients. So interesting data, uh, and I think that it's good data, and it's, it says that we're doing a good job in managing our JIA patients. Another study looked at hospital deaths and what the cause of hospital deaths were for anyone who goes into the hospital. Turned, it turns out this population-based study shows that 53% of hospital deaths are related to sepsis, and that uh, 38%, 35%, sepsis is the most is an immediate cause of death, Uh, And this is a a record review from six academic centers. Uh, Again, when you go into the hospital, that's the outcome that scares everyone, that that as a complication of whatever disorder you went in for, you could get infected and might die. Uh, They didn't go into risk factors in this particular study, but I think it was a a sort of an eye opener as far as the number or the percentage of deaths due to sepsis in this uh, population study. Uh, we have some articles in the uh, room now this last week. Uh, yesterday, we had an article from Greg Silverman, published in of Rheumatic Disease, about his research with the, Lucas, the in lupus patients uh, and the uh, analysis of the fecal microbiome. You know, He presented this data at the ACR last year. Uh, it's now in print. It's a very interesting publication. It's 66 lupus patients in whom they studied their uh, microbiome and uh, sort of looked at other things, including serologies and clinical activity, et cetera. They compared that to 17 normal controls that were age-matched. What they found in the lupus patients was a five-fold higher rate of a particular um, uh, 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 species, uh, the Ruminococcus navus, uh, that's RG, Ruminococcus navus, uh, what they found was that those who had overgrowth uh, and it was again five higher higher in lupus patients the ones who had that they were more likely to have flares that disease activity was associated with increases in anti-rg anti-ruminococcus navus antibodies and that, again it correlated very well with not only the sleet eye but also with double-stranded dna levels and as and inversely with uh, 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 complement levels so the other interesting thing showing again, the microbiome kind, might very well be associated or correlated with lupus activity is that the highest levels of, of um, RG, Ruminococcus navis antibodies were seen in those who had uh, lupus nephritis. Suggesting that these perturbations in the microbiome uh, leading to a specific pathobion um, might be driving disease. On the other hand, it might be a consequence of driven disease uh, and that ha- was not necessarily worked out by this study. But I know we've had a lot of research on the microbiome, very little being done in lupus, that's why uh, this report by Dr. Silverman is I think sort of very interesting and worth the review. Another big uh, ticket item occurred on Wednesday, uh, actually the announcement came on Tuesday where Pfizer made an announcement about a safety warning concerning high dose tofacitinib abuse. This came from the DSMB of a large prospective uh, safety study, where patients were being on with RA, older over the age of fifty, with cardiovascular risk factors, uh, on methotrexate, were enrolled to either receive five milligrams bid or ten milligrams bid of tofacitinib or uh, a TNF inhibitor, and they were followed for a long period of time, you know, three years plus, looking for what happens as far as safety outcomes in this in this particular study. Um, The warning stems from the DSMB noting that amongst those who are taking 10 milligrams BID, the dose that's not in use in in RA or PSA in the United States, um, actually had a a significantly increased uh, um, rate of uh, of pulmonary embolisms and a higher rate of uh, mortality. So that was a bit surprising, not necessarily uh, expected. Um, The recommendation from the DSMB and from Pfizer to the study sites was to take your patients who are on 10 BID and either stop the drug or lower the dose to 5 milligrams BID. Those that were on a TNF inhibitor were unchanged. Uh, There are other studies that are going on with um, toposidinam and other conditions are not going to be affected by this, nor should your patients who are taking this in your practice. Since this is an an unapproved dose, you shouldn't be using 10 milligrams BID, given this warning is out there. Again, the question now is, since this joins some of the data that's been reported for baricitinib on venous thromboembolic events, PEs, DVTs and whatnot, is this related to the JAKs or is this related to these drugs? Uh, Will we see this in other JAK inhibitors? Again, the bottom line, as far as I can tell, so far is the following. Number one, that having an inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis increases your risk of blood clots, VTEs, DVTs, and PEs, period. It's seen in a number of different autoimmune conditions. Second, the contribution of therapies doesn't seem to be all that consistent. The question lately has been, do the JAK inhibitors do this? A little bit of a suggestion with baricitinib, but you follow them out at both doses, and the current approved dose of two milligrams, doesn't seem like it's increased. The tofacitinib, this was not even in their label. And when they did a review of this and uh, posted this at the ACR meeting in 2018, it didn't look like they had anything higher than background rates. In fact, they were lower than uh, TNF inhibitor rates. So this finding in this study, the study that was stacked in favor of cardiovascular events uh, is surprising, but then again, maybe not. Um, There are other studies that occasionally show methotrexate has a higher rate. But again, the, the rate you're looking for is basically 0.5 events or lower that sort of uh, that wouldn't be due to drug, um, and that's kind of what we're seeing here for most of these reports. This particular critical safety warning given by uh, Pfizer did not have any n- true numbers and we'll have to wait until the report comes out uh, or it is published. Um, lastly, um, actually two more reports. One, hip replacements lasting 25 years. What, you're kidding? I don't know about you, but when I started in rheumatology, you know, all the orthos were saying, you know, a hip replacement's gonna last, knee replacement's gonna last 10 to 15 years. They're still saying the same thing. I had my knees replaced in 2011 when I pushed my surgeon, and he said, you know what, if you treat it right, it should last 30 years. So this is actually a study that was done, uh, actually it was a literature review that was done over 116 papers, they narrowed it down to 44 studies, over uh, I think 13,000 patients, Uh, and basically the pooled survival of hip replacements was 89% at 15 years, 70% at 20 years, and 58% at 25 years hip replacements are going to last 25 years in the vast majority of your patients. Uh, Again, there's no data out there right now like this for knees. There's actually, there is some, it's sort of scattered. Um, But the data is very good. And I think that you should tell your patients that these should last, you know, 20 to 30 years if you're an ideal candidate, if you don't mistreat the implant, if the surgery is a success. We'll end there with a report about the survival of uh, interleukin-1 inhibitors in my favorite condition, systemic JIA. This is a study, uh, an Italian study, following patients for over 15 years. I think it was about 77 patients in their study. Some were treated with anakinra, some were treated with canakinumab. And basically, they showed that there was no significant difference between survival of one drug in an, or another with systemic JIA. However, if you look at the graphs, um, the p-value is 0.1%. 0, 0.058, so a trend towards uh, or favoring canakinumab survival, more so than anakinra. Maybe that's because it's a longer-acting drug. Um, they, some of the other uh, factors that we're seeing here, uh, you actually had better survival on the IL-1 inhibitor when it was your first IL-1 inhibitor and not your second or third biologic. And then adverse events were actually more likely in those who had previously been treated with another biologic. The bottom line is that the use of IL-1 inhibitors seems to be quite successful in systemic JIA patients with a good survival and, and, and if used early, uh, reduces the risk of, of non-adherence or dropout or even adverse events. So that's it. Um, go to the website, check out these reports and more. Uh, we'll see you next week on the Room Now podcast. Tell your friends, check it out.